0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Uh, If you're new to our ministry, we're glad that you're here. Uh, Please leave a comment below to let us know that you're with us. Now, right now, we're in a series called Is God Racist? Today's message looks at a time in Israel's history when judgment was imminent. They'd imprisoned the prophet God sent to warn them, and the only one who advocated for his release was an African official. He gives us an example of faith in a period of faithlessness. Now, travel is difficult for all of us right now because of the pandemic, so it may be cruel for me to share a story about a family's dream beach beach vacation. But I'm going to do it anyway. It was Boxing Day and 10-year-old Tilly Smith went for a walk along My Cow Beach with her parents and her little little sister Holly. It seemed like one of those perfect family vacations. But as they walked, Tilly's facial expression suddenly changed and she tried to tell her parents that she was afraid there was going to be a tsunami. Like any good parent enjoying a great vacation would, they assured her, reassured her and told her there was nothing to worry about. But then she explained that she learned two weeks previously in geography class that the strange bubbles and the receding waterline were signs that a tsunami was on its way. She convinced her parents to listen. They ran back to the hotel and her dad approached the security guard saying, "'I know this sounds completely mad, "'but my daughter says there's gonna be a tsunami.'" Again, amazingly, he listened. He and the other hotel staff shouted for people to get out of the water and off the beach to higher ground. The hotel lobby on an upper floor became the gathering place, and just minutes later, a nine-meter tsunami had enveloped the beach, and 10-year-old Tilly was credited with, with saving lives of more than 100 people. It was one of the few beaches on the island with no reported casualties. And as I think about that story, I think that many people figure that if there is something called a final judgment, it'll hopefully play out a little bit like the way things did on that beach in Thailand. Everyone will be able to enjoy themselves up until the last minute. Then someone will alert them that disaster is coming. And with a little jog up the stairs, everyone will be safe and life can return to normal. Uh, Unfortunately, according to the Bible, that's not how it's going to work. In the Bible version, people aren't taught about it in geography or any other class for that matter. In fact, people take great pains to ensure that children aren't taught about it at all. When people do sound the alarm, there are lots of others who oppose and contradict them. And the hotel staff, which has a vested interest in retaining and growing paying customers, they make sure that everyone's calm and reassured that there's nothing to worry about. When the day of judgment does come, people will be shocked and surprised and very few will make it off the beach. Today's passage from Jeremiah 37 to 39 is a little bit like, Tilly's geography lesson. It gives us a picture of what things will look like before God's final judgment. And specifically, it shows us the characteristics of those who just keep on tanning on the beach when the tsunami approaches, and those who actually listen to the siren and make their way to safety. Uh, Like last week, it's a longer section of scripture, so we're going to read it in sections. Let's start with Jeremiah 37 verses 1 to 3 and the people who suntan in the shadow of the tsunami. Now, if you don't have the Bible handy, I want to encourage you to pause the video, get it open in front of you so you're able to follow along. Jeremiah 37, starting at verse one. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Cuniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehukal, the son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Masaiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. This is the word of God. Now, Verse 1 introduces us to a king named Zedekiah. He's the son of King Josiah that we saw last time in our study of the Book of Zephaniah. Josiah was a great king, perhaps Israel's greatest. But when he died, the nation found itself caught in between the two superpowers of Egypt and Babylon. Each of them tried to put rulers on the throne in Jerusalem that would keep the nation more loyal to them. And Zedekiah is the last of them. Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar has chosen him to lead, but the promotion is a little little bit like a job offer from a mob boss. If Zedekiah isn't completely loyal to Babylon, he's finished. Verse 1 gives us the political scene in Jerusalem, but verse 2 explains the spiritual climate. It says, But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, that he spoke through Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah is a little bit like Tilly Smith in this account. Only unlike Tilly, no one will listen to him. The people of God have no regard for the prophet or the word of God. But notice verse three. Although, Although Zedekiah refuses to listen to anything Jeremiah has to say, he sends a delegation to him saying, please, Pray for us to the Lord, our God. Before God's judgment, you have people refusing to listen to God, but still calling him our God and expecting him to answer their prayers. If you don't listen to God or change your behavior on the basis of what he says, how is it still meaningful to call him your God? That sounds like he's not your God, but more just like a little helper. But calling him your God and asking for prayer sounds so much more reassuring than declaring yourself an atheist. And this then is one of the first characteristics of people who suntan in the shadow of the tsunami. People who will be napping when the judgment comes want mercy, not warnings. They want the comfort of religion without any of its demands. They want God to listen to them, but they're not interested in listening to him. The second characteristics come, comes later in the same chapter in verse nine. It's a warning to Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. Now, the Chaldeans were just the ethnic group in southern Babylon. Jeremiah was sounding the alarm not to cross Babylon, because if they did, their destruction was certain. But everyone in Jerusalem was saying, well, the Chaldeans have pulled back now, so let's side with Egypt. Maybe they're going to come out on top and we'll be spared. This is why people don't listen to tsunami sirens. They cling to pleasant alternatives to the truth. Maybe the strange bubbles on the water are coming from a school of fish. Maybe the receding water is just the tide going out. Maybe we all just go to a better place maybe all roads lead to heaven. Maybe it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. People can't ignore warnings from God without embracing a more pleasant alternative to the truth. And so you need to really look at your beliefs and compare them with the scriptures. Because they may not just be wrong, they might be Satan's means to keep you from hearing the siren. Now, the third characteristic of people who relax on the beach as the tsunami rolling in is that they want to hear the truth, but they won't act on it. King Zedekiah helps, to, helps us to see this in chapter 38, verses 14 and 15. It says this, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the entrance of the temple of the Lord. The Lord said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question, hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Now, Zedekiah goes out of his way to call for Jeremiah to come to him. He wants a secret meeting with him. He wants to meet with the prophet of God. And he wants to hear the truth, apparently don't hold anything back. Give it to me straight. He sounds so sincere. But look at how Jeremiah responds to him. If I tell you the truth, you're going to kill me. And if you don't, you're certainly not going to listen to me. Well, guess what? The prophet is right. The king doesn't listen to any of Jeremiah's advice. And I think people do this all the time. Have you not noticed that often people will ask you for advice when they've already made up their mind, what they want. It's like they're searching for someone to agree with them and assure them that they're doing the right thing. Even though their conscience is convicting them, they're doing the wrong thing. I think people do this with any kind of advice. They'll ask around the office. They'll talk to family members. They'll search Google for articles and opinions. They'll eagerly, they're eagerly searching for someone to assure them that they're right, even though in their heart they know that they're wrong. In Zedekiah's case, he knew the counsel of his advisors didn't count for much, so he wanted to hear from Jeremiah. If he could just hear the man of God tell him what he wanted to hear, maybe he could sleep easier. And when the day of judgment comes, this is what's going to happen. People will be listening to sermons and attending Bible studies and watching YouTube videos of their favorite preachers, and they'll either medicate on false teaching to try to ease their conscience, or they'll convince themselves as long as they hear what's right, doesn't matter if they don't do what's right. People who suntan in the shadow of the tsunami want to hear the truth but won't act on it. Now, the final characteristic of people who won't listen to the sirens is that they fear the people they see more than the God they can't. In chapter 38, verse 19, it seems like Jeremiah may have finally convinced Zedekiah to surrender himself to Babylon. He's promised him that his life will be spared if only he'll listen to the Lord and trust him. And he's warned him that terrible destruction awaits if he refuses him at such a critical time. But in verse 19, it says, King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. He's threatened and insulted the Jews who had gone over to the Chaldeans. And so he worries that if he does the same thing that they did, they'll be cruel to him. And maybe they will. But the alternative is far worse. Zedekiah ultimately feared his fellow Jews more than he did the God he claimed to follow. And there's probably nothing that I've seen keep people from hearing and responding to God's warnings more than this. People say things like, well, my father would never forgive me if I became a Christian. My mother would kill me if I got baptized. People fear their friends, they fear their reputations, they fear what they might lose. I'm sure there were plenty of people on that beach in Thailand thinking, I've paid good money for this vacation. I don't wanna lose a good day at the beach because of some 10 year old hysteria. We need to watch our fears. We need to watch what we're afraid to lose. And we need to watch our fear of the Lord. The ones who fear the people they see more than the God, they can't inevitably miss the siren. They ignore the warning. They refuse to respond to it. Zedekiah shows us what someone who sleeps their way into God's judgment looks like. And the troubling thing, troubling thing is that he looks so spiritual. He's meeting with the prophet and he's asking for prayer. He says he wants to know the truth and he calls himself one of God's people. But ultimately, he's judged for his unbelief. He didn't heed the warnings. And predictably, Babylon did attack Jerusalem. He tried to escape, but he was caught. And chapter 39, verses six to eight describe his terrible end. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah and Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. It could have all been avoided if only he'd been willing to listen. Instead, the last thing he ever saw was his sons being killed before his eyes and then his captors taking out his eyes so that he'd never see again. He died in Babylon blind, defeated, and humiliated. And he stands as a warning to all who would ignore God's word. The final judgment will be far worse. So who will actually get off the beach? How does someone who actually responds to the siren act differently? For that, we need to first set the scene. I mentioned that with God's warnings, uh, they're often met with significantly more opposition than Tilly Smith experienced. Chapter 38, verses 4 to 6, give us a sense of that. You have this group of political power brokers, and they want the king's blessing to kill the prophet Jeremiah. He throws up his hands and he's like, well, I can't stop you, go ahead. And so they throw Jeremiah into a cistern. Now, a cistern was like a a bottle-shaped cavern. And the purpose of a cistern was to collect rainwater for drinking. But verse 6 says, there was no no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah Jeremiah sank in the mud. At least in a prison cell, you you can find some surface to sleep on. In the bottom of this muddy cistern, Jeremiah is going to be damp and dirty. It'd be like trying to sleep in the mud at the edge of a ravine. Jeremiah has sunk down into the mud. He'd be unable to rest his head properly. There are probably rodents and insects, and the threat of disease is real. This is how people who try to sound the alarm will be treated as the end draws near. And Jeremiah would die here had it not been for the intervention of one man. He's described starting in verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Ebed-Melech just means servant of the king. But he wasn't someone who polished Zedekiah's shoes. This was a designation for someone more along the lines of a cabinet minister. He's called the Ethiopian. In fact, he's called that four times, and so his ethnicity is being highlighted for us. The author wants us to understand something about his background. The word, though, isn't any different from the other references that we've seen. It's just the Hebrew word cushy. He's a Kushite. He's not from the more southern region of modern day Ethiopia, but farther north in Sudan, in what was then the African Kingdom of Kush. They were allied closely with Egypt, and so it's believed that Ibad Malik may have come to Jerusalem as a military envoy. The amazing thing in our passage here is that he's the only one who's willing to speak out against the Jewish officials and call what they did evil in verse 9. He puts his own position and political capital on the line in telling the king that what they've done is wrong. And Zedekiah is unable to disagree. He knows that Jeremiah is innocent and so he gives Ebed Malik the authority to rescue him. He shows us the character of someone who responds to the siren. He recognizes someone who was sent from God. He believes their message and is willing to take risks to stand for the truth. But maybe you're thinking, what does it matter? Jerusalem's going to fall. Everyone's going to die anyway. What does it matter if this Cushite trusts in the message of Jeremiah? He's not on a beach and there's nowhere to run to. Well, in chapter 39, verses 16 to 18 show us. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Even as Jerusalem's destruction is unfolding, God promises to deliver Ebed Malek. Though the Chaldeans will attack, he'll be spared. He'll arise from the city's total devastation unharmed. He's given precious promises of assurance. I will deliver you. I will surely save you. You shall have your life. And what's the reason that God gives? Is it because Ebed Malik showed so much courage? Is it because he was so compassionate? Is it because he had good connections with a high-ranking prophet? No. Verse 18 says, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. It was through his faith, that he received God's salvation. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord's promises. He trusted in the Lord's warnings. And this is always how people are saved in Scripture. If it was on the basis of his courage, we would always be wondering whether we're courageous enough. If it was on the basis of his compassion, we would question whether we were compassionate enough. And the fact is, None of our good works is ultimately good enough. Even Ebed Malik had, had a past. He had sins that needed pardoning and wrongs that needed forgiving. But he put his trust in the Lord and he was saved. Now, maybe some of you are still thinking, what does this message have to do in a series called, Is God Racist? Have we just camped on a passage because we found someone from Africa in the Bible? That's not what we're doing. We said at the beginning of this series that many people read the first century anti-foreigner prejudice that we see among many Jews in the New Testament, and they assume that was God's will in the Old Testament. We assume God was racist because we see some people who were. But what we've seen in the survey of the Hebrew scriptures is that God's plan has always been to bless the nations of the earth. When he rescued Israel from Egypt, this multi-ethnic crowd of seekers joined the people of God. Lines were drawn between those who worshipped other gods, but those who put their trust in the Lord, they were treated as equals. They were welcomed as insiders. They intermarried freely, and some rose to positions of great spiritual influence in Israel. But what this passage shows us is that foreigners not only came to faith when Israel was birthed as a nation, but also when it faced its destruction. Because whenever God's judgment was decreed in Israel, the promise was that a remnant would always be spared. There were always some who got off the beach. There was a believing remnant who trusted the Lord. And we typically assume that they were all Jews. Well, Abed Malik shows us that some of them were foreigners. Some of them were from Africa. In fact, at a time when Israel's king, its officials, and all its people seemed united in their rejection of God and his prophet, the only example we're given of believing faith here belongs to an Ethiopian eunuch. He alone is given as an example of someone faithful to God's prophet and to God's word. He's held up as a representative of those who escaped the judgment of God. God isn't racist. He sounds the alarm so that anyone who hears might come to him in faith and be saved. The reality is, all of us deserve God's judgment for, because of our sin. But Jesus has borne the judgment in our place on the cross so that all that's required is our faith. Faith is an empty hand that receives God's salvation as a gift. Faith is an open heart that welcomes Jesus' rule in our lives. Faith is an ear that can hear the siren's warning and turns to the refuge that God has made available in Jesus Christ. Hear his call today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know even as we look at this passage that just as there, were, as there were in ancient Jerusalem, there are today so many obstacles, so many competing voices, so many things that would keep people from listening to your warning and fleeing to the refuge that there is in Christ. But I pray, Father, that you would give each of us ears to hear, help us to see through the veil of religion and get to the reality of our response in faith and trust to Jesus Christ alone. I pray, Father, that you would save one more, that you would draw one more to yourself, and that you would give each of us the courage to stand for the truth, to believe you when believing you costs something. Thank you for Jesus Christ who stood in our place and bore the judgment that we deserved, that we might be spared. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, I hope today's message has helped you to see some of the characteristics of people who ignore the siren. They want mercy, not warnings. They cling to pleasant alternatives to the truth. They want to hear from God, but they don't respond to what he says. And they fear the people they see more than the God they can't. If that's you this morning, I want to warn and urge you with all of the urgency of Tilly Smith and the prophet Jeremiah, follow the Ethiopian and become part of this international remnant of people who trust in the Lord and stand for the truth. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.